Hi everybody, Mike Wardrop from Encounter Church here and thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. Our prayer is that through this podcast you could have an encounter with Jesus that would change your life. And now get ready for an inspiring message from our teaching team. Fantastic. Well, good morning, church. How's that for a Bible reading to get going, hey? I'm, uh, I'm really excited for today. I'm really excited for what God's going to do. Uh, I pray that this is an edifying word, but more than anything, we, we give glory to God in this. So it's edifying for God more so than it is for us. Um, but my name's Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. And it's uh, good to be with you. I'm just going to pray, and then we'll get into the word of God today. Lord Jesus, your will and not mine. Your spirit and not mine. May your words be words of life. May your gospel be always received as good news for all people. And we pray that today we can hear your voice, God, far more so than we hear any clever studying or thoughtfulness, that we hear the voice of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, summer sizzlers. Why I thought that the best thing, like the most casual way we could do to start off the year was to attack the most controversial topics possible, I'm not sure, but here we are today. And the idea is that this will teach us to be Bible-fed and spirit-led people, to be resilient disciples who are unoffendable in an offense culture of 2021, darling, 2021. So let's, unoffendable... Remember, that's your first opportunity today to not get offended. There may be more. Okay, let's go back a little bit. Mother's Day 2019, Transformation Church, Charlotte. A preacher steps onto the stage, delivers a message, much like we do every other Sunday. It was only notable for two reasons. The preacher was named Beth Moore, and she is a woman who is a leader within the Southern Baptist Convention. She is a, uh, a big figure in evangelical Christianity. She's a big figure in terms of her preaching and teaching and leadership. But she also happens to be in the Southern Baptist Convention, which would be the, uh, let's call it the largest orthodox uh, conservative movement in American Christianity. So there would be others that would be more conservative, that would be out, but they would perhaps be outside the bounds of what we might call orthodoxy. Beth Moore found herself at the centre of, of an argument after an invitation to speak at a Mother's Day service last May prompted criticism from some in the Southern Baptist Convention. Then last November, that is November 2019, Pastor John MacArthur attacked women preachers and specifically Moore in a sermon during the Truth Matters Conference. John MacArthur is not just some schmo like me getting up on a Sunday. He is a well-known theologian. He is highly regarded within Southern Baptist circles. That's worth noting. He said that women preachers were a disgrace and that more should go home. That's his quote. Go home. There is no case that can be made biblically for a woman preacher, period, paragraph, end of discussion, he said at the time. Appealing for peace, Moore suggested that the issue had been blown out of proportion as she accused some in the SBC of witch-hunting female speakers. Quote, there are no women trying to take over SBC pulpits, least of all me. This infighting over women preaching in the SBC is a distraction and an enormous waste of energy. Be honest about what these fights are over. Perhaps my memory fails me in old age, but I thought we were gospel people all sent out to share the good news of salvation through Christ. This is the battleground of many Christian churches. This is the topic we tackle today. Wish me luck. Now, a few quick questions to start off. Why am I preaching this? Right? Like, like why am I the person preaching this? Is this a statement? Well, here are a few reasons. First is a practical reason. Jenny's got January off from preaching. She ran Christmas and she gets a break. And I'm not going to change that just because of the topics. The second is a cultural reason. Men need to advocate for women too, not because women can't advocate for themselves, they absolutely can, but because men should do it too. The same way women should advocate for men. This is how God has designed us, and I will get to that later. By the way, when I talked about science and religion, I said I wouldn't move from my notes very much. Times that by two, and that's today. The third, a personal reason, by preaching this myself, 
I don't ever want it thought by anyone in or out of this church that I only allow women to preach an encounter by tacit approval or by omission. I do not. This is what I believe to be biblically true, and I want to speak about and expound on it so that nobody can ever have any differences of opinion about exactly what I believe in terms of women and their leadership and their preaching. This is what I believe. On that note, very excited for Taylor and Adelaide to preach next week. They are amazing. They're amazing women of God. They're going to bring a great word. I'm also excited for Jacob to preach next week. He's an amazing man of God. He's going to bring a great word. All three of them gifted and graced for what they do. We'll get back to that in a minute. But don't miss that. Okay, here's the second question. Sure, what does the Bible say? But will we be on the wrong side of history? Because there's no question that our wider culture affirms actions that appear, appear is the important word there, to push towards equality. Perhaps you saw Representative Emmanuel Cleaver last week in the opening of the US Congress finishing his uh, prayer with a man and a woman. Now, I can think of about 500 different comments to make about that. Most of them I sense God telling me to shut up. The word amen means so be it or I agree. It is not gendered at all. It was an absolutely ridiculous bit of virtue signaling that makes no sense. Emmanuel Cleaver is a minister, and an ordained minister in the United Methodist Church, which is why I'm being particularly savage here. He is not just a, a, a senator who's getting up and trying to do something polite. He knew what he was doing, and he did it theologically poorly, and he did it in a way to win approval in a woke culture didn't work, really, actually. It was pretty badly done. But that seems to be the culture we live in at the moment. But our job is to be people of the word and not of culture. So for me, as I approach this, with my bias, with my default setting of why shouldn't women preach, right? That's my default. I have to put that preference to death in order to tackle this topic. I have to. Otherwise, I'm being unfaithful to the word of God. And as a preacher, I cannot do that. I have to find out what does scripture actually say about this. And God, the author of history, has never been on the wrong side of history. He never will be on the wrong side of history. We have misrepresented him, misunderstood him, misspoke for him. But God himself has never said a word that is wrong, has never said a word that is destructive for us, but is always constructive for all of creation. This is who God is. So he, And fear not. Fear not. Don't be afraid to ask the hard questions. Jesus has overcome the world. So the final question, what are we not talking about today? Today we are not talking about women at home and the issue of male headship in the home. We are not talking about gender roles. We might have to touch on those briefly as we go through, but that's not the purpose of today. So you come out with a question about that. That's not what this sermon is for. So that's a full page of notes just to prepare you for when I start preaching, which hasn't happened yet. Okay. When we buckle up, I hope you've got a drink bottle. When we approach a text like this, like 1 Timothy 2, we have to be very conscious of who we are and how we read it, like I said, because all of us bring our own personal lens to how we read the Bible. You don't read the Bible in a vacuum. You don't know how. Nobody does. It's impossible. You bring your subjective biases to it. So our default in 2021, I would argue, for most people, is that when we read the Bible, we read it first through the lens of our personal experience. That is, does what is in here match up with what I have experienced in my life? And if it doesn't, then the Bible might be wrong. But that's not how Christians are called to approach difficult topics. John Tyson, channeling the great John Wesley, suggests we begin with Scripture Then we look at the apostolic tradition, that is, what has the church taught and why? Then we look at reason and logic, and then, only then, do we come to our personal experience once we've gone through those filters. So we have to put our biases and preferences to death in order to understand a passage like this. And instead, simply ask, what is actually being said here? Not what do I want to be said, what is being said? And that brings us to two interesting ideas. The first is called the whole counsel of God. In Acts chapter 20, verse 27, Paul says this to the Ephesian church. It's important that it's the Ephesian church because that's where Timothy was when he wrote him this letter. But this is the book of Acts. He says this, that he did not shrink from declaring to them the whole counsel of God. Now, this means that Paul was not teaching people to memorize single verses, but the whole story of God as revealed to God's people through the law, the prophets, the histories, and ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That is, when Paul taught the Ephesians, he taught the full story of God and not just a snapshot. 
And even though he would tackle the issues of the day and he would look at context, he would look at it through the lens of the whole counsel of God. There's an entire Bible to look at it through, the full biblical witness. Now, why is that important? It's important because we focus a lot on Bible verses and we treat them as, as what's called proof texts. I'll get to that in a second. It is very important that we remember, friends, when we come to this, there is no such thing as Bible verses, Right? It's a little bit of a mic drop, but it won't be. Let me explain. Bible verses were invented. That is, they, the Bible was chaptered, versed and numbered. That doesn't make sense, but you get the picture. It was, it was, the numbers were put in in 1551 by the French printer and reformer Robert Estienne, so that it would be easier for you to find memory verses for you to tattoo on the inside of your wrist. <laughs> For I know the plans you have for me, says the Lord. <laughs> plans to prosper. You know, you get the picture. Okay. It's my life first. Now, that doesn't mean you ignore this unoffendable church. This doesn't mean... Doesn't mean that you ignore verses. But it definitely means you don't get stuck on them or use them as a proof text. A proof text is a single verse, or a text anywhere, but in this case, a single Bible verse, that gets used to define your entire theology. So in this case, we would say 1 Timothy 2, 11 to, uh, what was it, 8 to 15, that is our proof text, and we build our theology from that rather than taking the whole counsel of God and looking at 1 Timothy 2 as part of the whole counsel of God. Does that make sense? We do not throw out 1 Timothy 2. We haven't, even un we haven't even exegeted it yet, but we don't throw it out. We just look at it as part of the whole counsel of God. Scripture against Scripture. That's how we read it. Not against our life experiences, not against the desires of culture right now, against Scripture. So with all that in mind, let's, have, let's actually look in the Bible. Have a look at some of that full picture, beginning with the theology of the Imago Dei. I'm going to keep moving quickly. Listen to it again on the podcast. It'll be good. Imago Dei is Latin for image of God. You and I are made in the image of God. Where do we read that? We read it in Genesis 1, 26. God says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. That's God speaking in the Trinity according to our likeness. Then in verse 27, so God created man in his own image. He created the male and female. Beautiful. Up behind me there. Now, Let's get into the Hebrew for a little bit. All my Hebrew nerds, this is your time. You may be familiar with the Hebrew word for man. It is pronounced Adam, or as we more commonly say, Adam. Adam, Adam, first man, right? But what you might not know that that is that that word Hebrew, Adam, is actually more of a word that is kind of inclusive. It's more like humankind than it is man. It is, it is a collective word in the sense that we use it broadly. It has a derivative from another Hebrew word called Adamah. Adamah. And Adamah means earth. Now we hear this in the creation story in Genesis 2, where the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground, the earth, and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. And the man became a living being. The Adam comes out of the Adamah. So in a sense, a better word than man, and I don't mean in a sense, I mean like actually, it would just be a weird read, but a better translation would be earthling. The man from the earth, the human from the earth. It's just that when we read earthling, we think of like 1960s alien movies. So we, we, we can't call it earthling. But that's the literal translation. Now, so Adam is, was certainly a male. Let's, let's not have any confusion there. And we see this more clearly later. That word Adam means humanity more than it means just man, like that a masculine sense, right? Much as we've used the word to mean, say, we've used mankind to mean all of humanity before. That's more what it means. But the Adam, the male earthling, was not meant to be alone. So God went looking for a helper for him. Now, this is another verse where sometimes sexism has crept in to our translations, not into the scriptures, but into our reading of the scriptures. God went looking for a helper, and in our mind, we're like, oh, so like, like a kitchen assistant or a, or a PA, like a secretary? Is that what God went looking for? That's why he created a woman, isn't it? Down with the patriarchy, you know, and then, and then we get all upset. Or we get a bit too excited and go, yeah, that's right, down with, you know, up with the patriarchy, whatever. <laughs> but the actual meaning of this word, 
The Hebrew word ezer is the one who helps or perhaps even the one who fights. It's typically used to describe God and the way God fights our battles. So for example, Psalm 70 verse 5 up behind me, I am oppressed and needy, hurry to me, O God. You are my help, Azair, and my deliverer, Lord. Do not delay. This is not like Siri or Alexa. This is a spiritual battleground. And God has designed a helper alongside the Adam, another Adam, who can work alongside them as a fighter. But the problem is, like, imagine this verse in Genesis 2.18 again, right? The, the Mike Hebrew uh, amendment, which might say something like, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a warrior who fights alongside him. And we go, yeah, that's combat sexism. Yeah, but it's, it's not actually that helpful. Because <laughs> if I translate it that way, you assume that humanity is about warfare. You assume that Eve was created to fight. And while she is designed to be somebody who stands alongside Adam in that fight, it's not about fighting. It's about humanity. So helper is still the best translation if we understand what helper means. Can you see now why we have to be so careful with proof texts? Imagine you just took that out of context either way, and you're like, no, no, it's just about being a fighter. It's like, no, no, it's just about being more like a secretary. Like, neither of those are true. We've got to realize that there is nuance in this and not just take the proof text. So then we get to the creation of woman in Genesis 2.23. Here's the verse. And the man said, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. Now, in a case like this, the English translation actually works pretty well. But the first word used there in the Hebrew for man, and the man said, is Adam. So the better translation would be, so Adam said, blah, blah, blah. Let, this one at last is bone of my bone. But the last word where it also says man, does not say Adam. It's the Hebrew word ish. Everybody say ish. Yeah, you guys, you guys sound like you're not 100% sure on something. Like, yeah, ish. Anyway, the Hebrew word ish is also a masculine noun that means man, but is, has different connotations. It does mean man, like a, a male, as opposed to Adam, which has a more general, it's a masculine noun, but has a more general application towards humankind. And the next word, time we see ish is the word isha. Everybody say isha. isha. Such good Hebrew this morning. Isha, which means literally out of man or no man. And this is the name of the woman. Ish and Isha, man and woman, woman from man, the helper drawn out of the helped. And of course, later in the picture of God and the family of God, we said that man comes from woman through childbirth. And this becomes the narrative of the family of God and the cycle of the helper and the helped battling alongside one another. Isha coming out of Ish and then Ish coming out of Isha. This is the complementarity, and I use that word on purpose and carefully, of the kingdom of God. Now, this is so important because it shows us that God creates humanity and not just men in God's image. And it shows us that men and women are designed to strengthen and complement one another. But then we get to Genesis 3, and Genesis 3 sucks. The woman is deceived, the man is disobedient, and we experience the fall, the removal of humanity from God's presence. Men and women have different roles in the fall, but both experience the same result. I'm going to go through this quickly, but it's important because of 1 Timothy 2 in which it says in verses 13 and 14, Adam was formed first. Adam was not deceived. And we think, oh, okay, wow, this is strong words. This is why we go back to Genesis. So if we take that idea back to the Genesis 2 narrative, okay, Adam was formed first and Adam was not deceived. We actually read that in verse 17, the man was told not to eat the fruit. And then shortly after that, the woman is created. So Adam is told, don't eat the fruit. And then Eve comes along. And, and you can't then go, oh, so right, Eve just took it. She was deceived. Like, was she or was she never taught what to do? Now, do I think that's literally true? No, I actually don't think that's literally true. But the argument gets used in 1 Timothy 2, and that's why I'm bringing the argument here. In this, we hear as if Eve had not been taught. In Genesis 3, 2 later, we hear Eve say, God has told us not to eat of this tree. So we know that she knew. But if we're using Genesis 2 to argue for 1 Timothy 2, I know I'm getting all exegesis Bible nerd here. Just come on, go with me. It's going to be exciting. Informative. It, if we're going to use that 
to justify this, then we better know what we're talking about and we better be willing to apply that back and go, does that make sense back the other way? No, it doesn't. It actually doesn't make sense. All right, so let's say the woman was taught to eat the fruit. She probably was. She knows not to touch it. Why do we have to go through this entire structure? Three reasons. Number one, show the larger biblical picture that we're working in. Again, not a proof text, the whole counsel of God, scripture against scripture. Number two, because Paul uses the structure of this in 1 Timothy 2. And number three, because let's not kid ourselves, these texts have been used for sexist purposes. They have. Sometimes they have been interpreted in a way that I would call less generous but still honest. That is, it is not their intention to be sexist. That is a different interpretation of Scripture. I'll get to that in a minute. But sometimes it's just been used for sexist purposes. And if we come to an interpretation that is not culturally appealing, tough. Our allegiance is to God. Our allegiance is to the Scriptures, not to our culture around us. However... If we see an interpretation that has been used for sexist purposes and we have an, an, an ability and a chance to tear that down, tear down false structures, then we should do so. In fact, we have a mandate to do so because the gospel is about liberation. It is about freedom. It is good news of great joy for all people. So when we find the truth, if we discover something, it becomes our duty to unpack that carefully. If there has been sexism, we identify it, we rebuke it, we repent of it and search for the truth. So let's outline just a handful of the significant female leaders through the Old and New Testaments. I do not have time to go through all of them. There are just too many. That could almost be the sermon by itself. I don't have time to go through all the great female leaders in the Bible. Let's start with Miriam. Miriam was the prophetess over the Hebrew people during the Exodus. Miriam was Moses' older sister. She was an undisputed leader in Israel with her brothers, Aaron and Moses. If you want to get upset, don't get upset over the patriarchy. Get upset over like nepotism because it was just that family in charge, really. Also, she was the reason that Moses' mother was still involved in Moses' life because it was Miriam that followed the basket. And when Pharaoh's daughter found Moses, was like, hey, 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 I happen to know this Hebrew woman, hint, hint. And the family stays together and the family of God narrative continues. Miriam is a key leader. Remember, by the way, this is, when we say that Miriam was a leader of the people of God and you go, well, but is that the church? Yes, that's exactly what the church is. The people of God is the church. You are not in a church, you are the church. If you're new here today, it's about people, not a building. It never has been. So that's Miriam. Let's keep pushing on. Deborah. Deborah is probably the biggest case in a lot of ways. She was a leader, prophet, and judge in Israel during the time of Judges. You'll find it in the book of Judges. And Deborah was the key leader in Israel. Why did they have Judges? Because they did not yet have a king. What does that mean? Deborah was the boss. She was in charge, effectively, at this time. And the general Barak came to her for advice. She said, you need to go out and attack this guy. He said, I don't want to do it unless you come with me. She's like, all right, fine. I don't care. I'll come. I'm fearless. However, just so you know, Barak, a woman's going to get the glory from this, not you. And he's like, ah, fine. And that's what happens. Jael um, becomes the woman who overthrows the, the uh, general that he's attacking, Sisera. So Deborah um, prophesied that. He, she was leading the people at the time. Hulda, 2 Kings 22, verses 14 to 20. She was prophet over the people in the times of King Josiah, one of the greatest kings of Israel. There were many prophets they could speak to at that time, but Josiah sent his leaders to go to this woman to sit under her wisdom and teaching and prophetic gifts. Let's go to the New Testament. Mary of Bethany. There are many Marys in the New Testament. Sometimes uh, some scholars have poorly tried to put them all in together. What seems more likely is probably something like four different Marys. Obviously, Mary, Jesus' mother, and a couple of others. Mary of Bethany you may remember as Mary, Martha, Lazarus. If you're familiar with that passage, Lazarus, who was raised from the dead, is the brother of Mary and Martha. And Mary's in a few different parts in the New Testament, but perhaps the most famous one is when we see her sitting at the feet of Jesus. And Martha comes in from the kitchen. She's like, Master, Jesus, what's going on here? I'm doing all this hard work, and Mary's just sitting here. Now, this is where you've got to watch out for your own personal experience. Because if you read this like I do, you go, oh, yeah, Martha's ticked off because she's been working really, really hard and Mary's just kind of sitting there and like, yeah. And that's true, but that's not the reason she's upset. The reason she's upset is Mary of Bethany is behaving like a male disciple. She is sitting at the feet of the rabbi, receiving the teaching, uh, allowing others to work on their, on their behalf while they get teach, uh, while they are educated, while they learn. And what's Jesus doing about it? He turns to Martha and says, you've made the wrong choice. Mary's chosen what is better. 
Jesus identifies and names Mary of Bethany as a disciple in that moment. And when we say disciple, what do we really think of first? Like the 12. That's the kind of place Jesus puts Mary of Bethany. Oh, but there weren't any female disciples. Yes, they were. There just weren't any in the 12. But the 12 disciples were not only men who travelled with Jesus everywhere, they represented the 12 tribes of Israel, the sons of Jacob. There were 12 men like there were 12 tribes in the Old Testament because Jesus was doing a new thing with a new people and a new covenant. I can keep going, but we don't have time. Just Mary Bethany, she's a disciple. Look it up, gosh. Okay, Mary Magdalene, the first witness to the resurrection. She had seven demons cast out of her and she was the first witness to the resurrection. Now, not only was she the first witness to the resurrection, she was the one that meets Jesus first, speaks to Jesus first. And Jesus does what? Sends her to the other apostles, to Peter and John and all the big weeks to say, go and tell them what you have seen. Make them be quiet and inform them about what you have seen here. She is the first witness, the first missionary. Let's go into the letters. Phoebe. Phoebe is first in the list of greetings in Romans. Paul commends her to the church in Rome. And this is what he says. He says, do what she tells you to. He uses this this phrase, assist her in whatever matter she may require your help. And uses the Greek word paristeme for the word help. Now, we went back to Genesis and we looked at the word help and realized it has quite quite an aggressive connotation. So we better go into the Greek and look at the word paristeme and go, well, what's the connotation here? Well, if the word in Genesis means like co-fighter, the word in, in Greek, in, in, um, in Romans, means more like, um, I, I will do what you tell me to, because I am your servant. That's what that kind of helper is like. So let's take a sexist viewpoint of this. Let's assume that this is all about men, and this letter is only going to men, and it's only four men who are going to lead in the church. Let's assume that. And so Phoebe is going to bring it, and she'll read it out, and Paul says, hey, I want you all to abase yourselves and do what this woman tells you to. It just doesn't work either way, if you take that perspective. Now, a few more things about Phoebe. She's probably a deacon, which means she's a leader in the church. She's a patron. She is paying Paul's way. I actually think that's why she's the first person mentioned in the, in the thanks at the end of Romans, but maybe I'm just being a cynic. But here's the, here's the other really, really important thing. She would have been the one that took the letter to the Roman church. The person who did that stood there and read it out. Teaching. If, if you're not teaching by reading Romans, I don't know what you're doing. She is teaching the word of God as written by Paul through Romans. Do you know what happens when you read Romans? You do this. I don't understand. And Phoebe, who would have been there when Paul was writing it and was sent by Paul, would have been instructed by Paul, okay, here's what I was saying. I need you to instruct these people in the church. She's been educated about what to do, and she goes and does it. You with me so far? Yeah, that's good. It's so difficult to tell what my position is here. Ben Witherington III argues this. By the way, that's a great name for a scholar. Paul would have explained it to Phoebe personally, like she's a co-worker with him. Let's look at Priscilla. Priscilla led with her husband Aquila. They are second in the list of greetings in Romans. Paul stayed with them. They, including Priscilla, we see that very clearly in the text, teach Apollos, the preacher, about Jesus authoritatively. So Apollos is preaching about John the Baptist. Priscilla and Aquila hear him. They're like, oh, you are so close. Do you know about Jesus? He's like, who's Jesus? So they take him. Apollos gives his life to Jesus. And Priscilla and Aquila together, the script, the text in Acts is very clear about this, teach Apollos together what it means to be a preacher of Jesus. And then Apollos goes out and does what he is gifted to do, not because he is a man, but because he is Apollos. And he goes out and does that. Now, it is also very clear that they teach together, Acts 18, 26, and that they are church planters together, Romans 16, 5. Frankly, it's a pretty compelling vision for husband and wife in ministry partnership, Priscilla and Aquila. Let's get to Junia. This is the shortest and yet most compelling One single verse in Romans, Romans 16, 7, which says this, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews and fellow prisoners. They are noteworthy in the eyes of the apostles, and they were also in Christ before me. What do we know? Andronicus is a man, Junia is a woman. We have no idea if they were married. What we do know, we don't know if they had any relationship or if Paul just lumped them together. What we know is this. Not only does Paul commend them, he calls them fellow prisoners. He says they were in Christ before him. They gave their lives to Jesus before he did. Then he calls them noteworthy in the eyes of the apostles. 
That's pretty good, but I would argue that this is a mistranslation. If you don't want to take my word for it, Tim Keller, Scott McKnight, and N.T. Wright right here next to me agree with me, so take it up with them. Uh, This adjusted translation is probably in the footnotes of your Bibles. Not noteworthy in the eyes of the apostles, noteworthy among the apostles. Among. This is a more accurate translation of the Greek preposition en, E-N, which usually means in or among. It's translated as the word among in the New Testament 117 different times. It's translated in the eyes of just that one time. Why? Because it doesn't make any sense. Because there has been, uh, at periods of time, translations not from the text, but out of the text into English, where English translators said, hmm, not sure I love that. Why don't we translate it this way? Why is this so important? Because the word apostle It's generally used to describe the 12 disciples. It is the highest office given to leaders in the New Testament. There isn't anything higher. Here is the list in the New Testament of where it gets used. The 12 disciples, James, brother of Jesus, head of the church in Jerusalem, Paul and Barnabas, Andronicus and Junia, this woman Junia we just spoke about, Silas, maybe. It's implied, but we don't know for sure. That's it. That's the list. So Apollos isn't on the list, like some of these great Christian leaders. Um, Titus, Timothy, they're not on the list. Tough break for Timothy when he gets this letter later. By the way, don't forget it was written to Timothy. Don't get mad at him. (laughs) That's the whole list. So for Junia to be listed as not just an apostle, but noteworthy among the apostles is a big, big deal. We could go further, but Scott McKnight comes to this conclusion about what we do know and just says this, this gets tiresome as an argument. Let the Bible say what it says. Junia was a woman. She was an apostle. She was a great apostle. Give her a break. Not bad, Scott. So in the Old Testament, the Gospels, in the early church, all we can see of women is examples of them leading, fighting battles, prophesying over Israel, speaking judgment, sitting at the feet of Jesus, behaving like a disciple, behaving like an apostle, teaching, planning churches, bankrolling missionaries, bankrolling movements, and being the first witnesses to the resurrected Jesus and to go and tell the disciples what to do. Not a bad list. Given all of that, why are there alternative viewpoints? You may notice with some fear and trepidation that I have not started speaking about 1 Timothy 2 yet. It's a big topic. We have to approach it properly. Please hear me carefully about why there are alternatives. <clears throat> the reason there are alternative viewpoints is because there is sufficient evidence in the writings of Paul for us to ask the question. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul writes this, As in all the churches of the saints, the women should be silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to submit themselves, as the law also says. But in 1 Corinthians 11, we hear that Paul is okay with women praying and prophesying in the church. So for Paul just to say they must be silent doesn't hold water. It doesn't make sense. He's just affirmed prayer and prophecy among the women in the church. Oh, but maybe just among women? No, it's actually pretty clear that it's among women and men because he then speaks to men about the same context. Then, of course, 1 Timothy, as we heard today, we in the 21st century would use the word problematic, but we use that about everything anyway. When you add to that the different Bible verses about male headship or leadership in marriages, we can see why this question pops up. What do we do about that? There are two easy answers. The first easy answer is women can't speak in church because it says so. The second easy answer, but on the other side of the fence, is it's all contextual or cultural. It was written 2,000 years ago. People use those arguments. Both those arguments are poor. They're lazy and they are poorly founded and they show a lack of scholarship. D.A. Carson, perhaps the leading traditional scholar when it comes to uh, biblical interpretation, considers the silence answer unbiblical, particularly when it comes to prayer and prophesying in church. This is somebody who would have a very, very conservative or traditional viewpoint. He would say the silence answer is too simple and unbiblical. So you can take that one away. N.T. Wright, maybe the greatest New Testament scholar alive today, makes this suggestion. 1 Corinthians 11 is actually not really about hierarchy. It's about gender distinction. That is, the differences between male and female are divinely created, distinct and important. We should not take that for granted, but that is an entirely different sermon that may ruffle an entirely different set of feathers. The reason Paul talks about head covering so much in this passage, lots of fun, give it a read when you get home, has much more to do with the 
anarchy in the worship in the Corinthian church, which was an absolute hot mess, and the needed and divided distinction between genders than it does about leadership or speaking out loud. 1 Corinthians 14, following on, talks about women being silent in church. Now, it is possible that this part was added on to 1 Corinthians later. Some scholars think so. Most scholars don't. So let's assume it wasn't added on later. What do we do with that? We've already seen women can speak in the assembly in prayer and prophecy, so it's not silence. We've also seen Paul honour women so we can take out the lazy argument of misogyny. Both of those lazy arguments. So what is it? Well, this whole passage of 1 Corinthians is about order in worship, the edification of the body of Christ for the glory of God. What does that mean? It means that when we talk, and maybe, maybe the irony is right now I'm speaking in a way people are struggling to understand. I hope not. But when we talk, when we pray, when we worship, the purpose is that everyone understands and gives glory to God. And what was happening was not doing that. Was it just the women? Absolutely not. Every chapter in 1 Corinthians is like textbook, how not to run an organization. Everything is going wrong. And everybody knows that. That's not up for debate. That's not something people are confused about. So uh, this is why I think that this particular passage in 1 Corinthians is about women who in that time, a specific group of women, who were either uneducated in the Greek spoken at church or they were publicly criticising their husbands, don't do that, please, or who simply were a small group of people in a house church, remember? That's how they met. It wasn't like this. It was a small room or a smaller room who were loud and obnoxious and taking over. I think that in this case, not always, it is contextual. You cannot do that all the time. That's also lazy. But in this specific instance, everything together leads me to the conclusion that this has to be a contextual comment. I'm going to leave 1 Corinthians there so that you can all eat lunch today. Let's move on to 1 Timothy 2. How do we examine this difficult passage? Interpreters of 1 Timothy 2 tend to land in one of three positions. Number one, women should never lead or teach men in any church. Number two, women shouldn't lead or teach unless they are educated. Then they can do so, but only under the leadership of a man. On, on number three, these specific Ephesian women shouldn't lead because they have been deceived. Uh, part of the letter to Ephesians, and specifically Timothy's letter to go and minister to the Ephesians church, is about false disciples that have come in, particularly a guy called Hymenaeus who would come in later. Um, Jordan actually preached on him when he preached uh, recently. Go back and listen to that sermon for more about Hymenaeus. So which is it? 1 Timothy is a pastoral letter. It is from Paul to a young Christian leader who he mentored, and it is designed to help Timothy restore order in the church in Ephesus. Ephesus was a city known for its goddess worship. The Greek goddess Artemis, goddess of the hunt, was the main object of worship in that city. Given that the women in the church of Ephesus were more likely from a Greek background than a Jewish background, they wouldn't have come from the Jewish law, and more likely than not to have been involved in the cult of Artemis in their worship, before their conversion to Christianity, the comment about women not being permitted to teach or have authority is quite possibly, again, just cultural. We could be dealing with a very poorly behaved group of women, but I, I think that's too lazy a reading of this text. And it doesn't quite fit. There may be some truth in it, but I don't think it's the best answer. Should be clear by now, I don't think there is biblical precedent for women never teaching or leading men in the church. But what about the other positions? Let's, let's un unpack this. Verses 8 to 10 say this. They say they talk about fights and clothing. Well, I think we can just read this straight. As you read this up behind you. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. Partly because when you lift up holy hands in prayer, you stop being angry and you stop arguing. This is a rebuke against poor behavior by men. Paul goes on. Also, the women are to dress themselves in modest clothing with decency and with good sense. Now, if we take off our angry, this is the patriarchy lens, and we just read that, is like, can you please dress with good sense? Uh, yes, all of us should do that. But in this specific case, he's speaking to the women in Ephesus through Timothy, not with elaborate hairstyles, gold, pearls, or expensive apparel. Dress with good works instead. Don't get focused on your clothing. Focus on the work you're doing for God. He is rebuking women, yes, alongside his rebuke of men. They are different because men and women are different. They're also different because the situation in Ephesus is specific. He is speaking into that specific situation with specific instructions for men and for women. Does that mean we don't still look at those and go, good advice, Paul, that applies to us today? Absolutely it does. Read it. 
Absolutely. You can read that straight and just go, this is a really, really good piece of advice. Men, are we stopping arguing? Are we lifting up holy hands in prayer and worship? Worse, are we coming to this passage in 1 Timothy 2, getting concerned about what it says about women and forgetting what it says about men? I'll just leave that one there. Verses 11 and 12 are the ones we really struggle with, but New Testament scholars N.T. Wright and Melinda Cousins take a different stance, which I think is more accurate and more helpful. And shout out to Melinda, who's a friend of mine and would probably really enjoy being put in a sentence with N.T. Wright. Uh, In this passage... Cousins points out there is only one imperative. There is only one command in this whole difficult passage. And it's not about silence and it's not about teaching. It's about women learning. Now catch this. Cousins goes on to say that as a third person imperative, this is the way the Greek is written, a literal translation of verse 11 might be, let women learn. Let women learn. Now let's let's just read the way we see that instinctively. And this is in the CSB. A woman is to learn quietly with full submission. Well, that's actually fine if we read it back and go, oh, this is an instruction to make sure that women are allowed to learn in a culture where they traditionally didn't, where Mary of Bethany was breaking moulds and Jesus calls her a disciple and leads her into a space of discipleship. Paul is doing the same. He says, when you you do it, just do it quietly with submission. Oh, submission to men. No, submission to God. Submission, I would add, I suspect, to the leadership of the church at the time. The male leadership? Maybe, probably. I don't know. I don't know who was leading that church. That's not the point. The point is submission to the leadership, submission to the Lord. He then goes, from this we can infer that women were not learning at that time. We don't know why, but Paul was effectively breaking the patriarchy. And women got told off for getting too close at that time again and again, and Paul pushes back against that. Paul is not a sexist. That is a cheap and unwise comment. If you hear it come up, take people to task. He says, a woman is to learn. Let them have the same education opportunities. Ask yourself why they have to learn. Just just sit that there. So the word instruction is not only okay, it's actually shattering cultural norms around gender. See the kingdom of God break in for women in that time. Paul then goes on to tell the women to learn in what we translate as quietly with full submission, but it's not the most helpful translation, as I said. It is still about worship. It's about the way we learn and listen in worship and understand what is happening in order to do something about it. Now, we love a responsive church here at Encounter, don't we? Yeah, 10 a.m., come on. But we are called and challenged to listen and learn as we do so. Our worship is joy-filled, but it is not obnoxious. Big difference. Paul is challenging that idea. Verse 12 is where we really ask the question. Verses 8 through 11 are effectively fine. Verse 12 is when we ask the question, are women allowed to teach over men? Well, in the light, again, of uh, what N.T. Wright has said, we, we get some new language. Because if we're looking at it from a different perspective, it's not about submission to men, it's about submission to the Lord and an opportunity to learn. This is what Tom Wright suggests. Again, he knows a lot more than you and I. He suggests that the most helpful translation is something like, I don't mean to imply that I'm setting up women as the new authority over men in, in the same way men previously held authority over women. Now, if we say it's something like that, which is faithful to the text, the context for our understanding has changed. It's not about silence, it's about learning in worship, which means that the context of that next sentence changes too. And this is where we've got to go back to the cult of Artemis, which I knew you were hoping I'd bring up again. Wright suggests that because of the context in Ephesus, Paul may be warning against seeing a new world order raised up, where basically we say, down with the patriarchy, up with the matriarchy. He's like, no, that is still oppression. It's just a new form of oppression. Wright suggests that this was driven by the cultural practices of the Artemis worshippers. It doesn't mean women cannot ever teach. It simply means that they are, in the context of Ephesus, not seizing control of that from men in Ephesus. And I think you can actually translate that across the scriptures. They're not to seize control in some kind of new world order. Let me get to why in a minute. As Wright says, Paul is saying that women must have the space and leisure to study and learn in their own way, not in order that they may muscle in and take over the leadership as in the Artemis cult, but so that men and women alike can develop whatever gifts of learning, teaching and leadership God is giving them. It's not about the gender, it's about the gifting. It's glorious. So through the Old Testament... 
the Gospels, the early church and the letters of Paul, we see women lifted up as equal co-laborers with men, leading, teaching, having apostolic authority, witnessing and being disciples. So can women preach and lead in the church? The whole counsel of God gives us a resounding yes. 1 Timothy 2 or 1 Corinthians 14, even if we take them as a proof text and start there and go backwards, should not conclusively tell us women are not allowed to do that. And when we go to Galatians 3.28, which says that there's neither slave, no, no, I should actually read this properly, but neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for all is one in Christ Jesus. And we see the liberty of the gospel. Not to stop sin being sin, but to allow freedom where there should be freedom. We understand that we have been doing a poor job of reading a complicated text. Now, and I am beginning to come to a conclusion. I would call my perspective a new creation perspective. It begins at Genesis, at creation, with the divinely created and distinct man and woman, Ish and Isha. I mean, I wouldn't be too fast, Taylor. It's up to you. It begins in Genesis at creation with the divinely created and distinct man and woman, Ish and Ishar, serving as co-warriors together. It continues throughout the leadership we see in the Old Testament, Miriam, Deborah, etc. It goes through the Gospels, see Mary, Mary of Bethany, Mary Magdalene, etc. Into the epistles where we see Phoebe and Janir and Priscilla and ends with the wedding in Revelation. It is all part of a grand narrative of liberating humankind from the bonds of sin. And the bonds of sin include the oppressive evil of sexism. That is one of the bonds of sin that Jesus came to see destroyed. Now, you might be asking, Mike, isn't this just a little bit convenient for you to translate? And I understand that question, and I think it's fair. I have a wife, I have a daughter. My wife is a preacher, teacher, leader, pastor. My daughter can be whatever she wants to be in Jesus' name. But no, it's not a convenient translation. It's only convenient for me to translate it this way. If you treat 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 12, two verses, and 1 Corinthians 14, 33 to 35, three verses, as proof texts, and disregard the rest of the biblical witness. That is not convenient. It's only convenient to hold my theological position if I start at those two passages and read every other part of the Bible through that lens. If I, however, hold a new creation perspective and then examine the original text from there, it holds up. And I believe that's a more holistic and helpful way to read the Bible. Right, let's go into 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 13 to 15 as we finish. Because that's still just kind of sitting there. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. But yet Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and transgressed. But And this is the really awkward one. But she will be saved through childbearing. I've seen childbirth happen. That's not what it looked like to me. I, I did not have, a, have, have an overwhelming feeling of salvation. It was more like, if I could, I would be in a different room. Um, so as we go into verse 15, and your Bibles are helpful here, and we wonder why women are saved through childbearing. We are drawn... You see, my translation is slightly different, but there might be a translation you have that says women are saved through childbearing. We're drawn to the footnote attached to that word which says she, not women, but she. Here's why that's important. Because the previous verse, Paul has been talking about Eve. Not women, a woman, Eve. And I don't believe it's that women are saved through childbearing and neither does Paul. Don't ever think that's his doctrine of salvation. Read it. Any of his other letters. This is not what Paul believes about salvation. You're saved through faith in Christ alone, by the grace of God. It's that Eve is saved through childbearing. Why is that? Is it because Eve needs to have a baby to save her? No. But it's because through the family line of Eve, a child would be born for salvation. He would crush the serpent's head who deceived Eve. He would set the captives free he would re-establish the Garden of Eden again. Calling Jesus the one born of Eve might sound weird, but we also call him son of Adam. See, the vision of God, friends, comes into being throughout the New Testament as a vision of family. It begins with a mother and father, Eve and Adam. It's renewed and clarified through a new mother and father, Sarah and Abraham, and their family, Israel. 
and is finally fulfilled by the new Adam, the image of God the Father on earth, Jesus the Messiah, who becomes both our true older brother, the husband of the church, and the image of God the Father here on earth. And when this happens, the family, Paul makes clear, becomes expanded to include anyone who calls upon the name of Jesus, whether Jew or Gentile, slave or free, you or me, female or male. It is a new creation vision. Because, I cut this out, it's one of the 27,000 pages of notes I cut out. I did cut some stuff out, I promise. I cut this out, but it's good. Uh, see, scripture begins, friends, with a, with a wedding and creation. It begins with Adam and Eve, and it begins with creation in the garden. And it ends with a wedding and new creation. It ends with the people of God, the bride of Christ, and the marriage feast of the Lamb. We come to the table of God that is prepared for us, female and male together, co-workers, co-fighters together in the ministry. And our bridegroom, Christ, the one who has saved us, the one who has died for us and laid himself down for us, welcomes us to the wedding feast. And it inaugurates this new marriage between humanity and Jesus that begins the new creation, the new Jerusalem, where everything is put back as God intends it to be. The world, all of creation is renewed, including the restoration of healthy relationships between women and men. And guess what? When we get to the presence of God, no one's going to be arguing about who gets to preach or lead because only one person will, and his name is Jesus. Not because he's a man, but because he is God's only son and he sits on the throne. Hallelujah. Thanks so much for listening. I pray that you were able to hear from God in a fresh way today. We'd love to hear from our listeners. To connect with us or to support the work of Encounter, please jump on our website, encounteradelaide.com.au. And if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to jump onto iTunes, Spotify, or your podcast provider and give us a rating and review. Or share this message on your social media accounts and tag us at Encounter Adelaide. God bless. Have an amazing week.